This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 17 to 43. Luke chapter 18, verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Do not commit, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, and he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Thank you, Beatrice. Please do keep that passage open in front of you, page 877. That will help uh, me a lot as we go through. Um, My name is Roger. If I don't know you, hello. I'm one of the ministers here at Chalmers, and I'd love to get to know you if I haven't yet met you in person. Um, Our topic today is um, doing the impossible, and so I'm going to pray for God's help as we turn to think about that. Father, we do pray that you would be at work now amongst us. We pray you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, and so to love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Pray that in his name. Amen. As I say, our topic is doing the impossible. Uh, Things we'd like to do that are now impossible. You might be thinking, fit into my clothes that I wore 10 years ago. It's just impossible. Um, I remember texting my best friend when when I turned 30, actually. I texted him and said, that's it. A career in professional football is definitely now impossible. Um, He texted back and said, well, you could still do darts or croquet. Actually, even now, those dreams are starting to fade as well. Uh, I remember our our son, Josh, um, when he discovered that he had come out of mummy's tummy, 
he wanted to go back in to see what it was like. <laughs> and we explained it was impossible, but he went into a massive tantrum. I want to, I want to. Similarly, they once wanted the moon to come down so they could see what it felt like. There's lots of things as you go on in life. There's lots of things you, you discover that you might want to do but are impossible. It's impossible to make a first impression twice, sometimes to our regret. It's impossible to untoast bread. That's quite trivial, but however much you scrape it, you're not untoasting it. More poignantly, though, as you reach the latter stages of life, you realize it's impossible to turn the clock back. Possible to go back and change things however much we might want to. In Luke 18, Jesus has been talking about something that's impossible, not one of the trivial things like toast, but one of the most important issues in the universe, how to be saved, how to enter God's eternal kingdom, how to get eternal life beyond the grave. Nothing bigger than that, how to be forgiven and in the right with God forever. And we ended last week on a big shock. Uh, so we're actually starting at verse 26 today, but, but I, we read the bit just beforehand to remind us of the shock we just had. We had this really good candidate. Um, I'll just put him up on the screen, hopefully. Oh, mine's not working. Let's see. Oh, here we go, here we go. There we go. There's him with his credentials. He was rich, he was keen, he was moral, he was sincere, and he failed to enter God's kingdom. Walked away sad. And there's this conversation afterwards in verse 24 um, where Jesus reflects on this, seeing this man have walked away sad. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Striking that, this guy would have probably lived around Morningside. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved if someone like that misses out? Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Who can be saved? Well, with human beings, it is impossible. As impossible as Josh getting back inside his mum's tummy. As impossible as me playing for Liverpool's first team. Really, at any age, but certainly now I'm, I'm quite old. It's impossible. As impossible, said Jesus, as squeezing a camel through the tiny hole in a needle. It's just not possible with human beings. And actually, if you've been around in, in the kind of recent weeks and months of Luke, you might actually be feeling a bit of this because Jesus has been setting the bar for following him really high. He said things like, he needs to be number one. Can't just fit Jesus in like a little hobby in the week, kind of minor thing, just a couple of hours on Sunday. No, he needs to be number one. And it's going to be costly following him. It's going to involve publicly aligning ourselves with him and, and taking the flack when it comes. We might be feeling, wow, this sounds impossible for someone like me. Especially when good candidates are not making the grade. We had the Pharisee last week. Uh, he was morally decent. He was spiritually serious. He, he was praying, look, at least I'm not as bad as these people over there. Or at least I've done these things. He'd given to charity diligently. Even he was not good enough to be justified in God's sight by his performance. This rich ruler, just at the start of our passage, he said he kept quite a lot of God's law, five out of ten on the Ten Commandments. He treated people really well, and yet he couldn't love God more than his money. And so he missed out. 
The disciples are in shock then as we begin this passage today. If those folk can't make the cut, well, who can be saved? Can anyone be saved? Well, humanly speaking, no. It's impossible. It's as impossible as rewinding time. Because actually that's what you'd need to do to be fit for God's kingdom. Because who of us hasn't got a record that's stained? Who of us could say, there aren't things in my past where I haven't even lived up to my own moral standards, let alone God's? Or opportunities to do good things, to love God or to love others? And I put myself first, missed the opportunity. With human performance, it is impossible to enter God's kingdom. That's where we left things. It was pretty sobering. But actually, like all good box sets, there was a spoiler that there's more to the story. Um, Jesus doesn't just say it's impossible with man in verse 27. He also says it is possible with God. God does something to make it possible. And we might be thinking, well, how does that work then? So um, we've seen that it's not by the rich man, uh, the kind of, uh, just tell me what I need to do and I'm sure I'll be able to make the bar. And last week we saw there is a way, which is to receive it like a child. We can receive God's kingdom like a child. Um, Even the the moral failure of the tax collector last week just prayed and received forgiveness when he prayed in the temple. Which begs the question for today, how? How is it that you can just receive the kingdom like a child? Well, that's what we're thinking about. How is God going to make the impossible possible? You'll see there's an outline on the back of the sheet. We've got three basic points. Uh, Three points, the cross, the miracle, and the prayer, the cross, the miracle, and the prayer. We're going to see how God makes the impossible possible. Um, just before we get to the cross, though, in verse 31, let's just check in with the disciples, verses 28 to uh, 30, um, see how they're doing, you know. Um, now, Peter, Peter, interesting, verse 28, he hears all this. It's impossible with, with, um, with man. He's watched this man walk away, unable to put Jesus before his wealth. And Peter says, well, hang on, verse 28, we have actually managed to leave some things to follow Jesus. It's quite hard to know what his tone is. Is he showing off, saying, well, we're different? Or is he just amazed? Like, well, hang on, how did it work for us? Because we have started following Jesus. I suspect it's that one. I suspect he's thinking, well, how then did we become followers? And Jesus' response makes it very clear that the kingdom of God is not about what we give up for God, but what he gives to us. Look at that, verse 29, 30. Even those who've had real cost for following Jesus end up, verse 30, receiving many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Or in other words, the same point. The kingdom is about what God gives to us graciously, not what we sacrifice for him. So then, that was last week. Let's get on to our, our first point then, the cross. We've got three things uh, to think about as God makes salvation possible. How is it possible? Well, first thing, the cross. In lots of ways, the cross is what this whole journey to Jerusalem has been about. Since chapter 9 of Luke, we've been heading towards the cross. And Jesus has actually said it three times now. This is the third time, verse 31, when he takes the, crowd, the, the 12 and says, look, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. But look at verse 34. They understood none of these things. Verse 34. This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. 
Seems like it's impossible for the disciples to understand this, to get their heads around the cross. And of course, it's not just the disciples back then, is it? Today, so many people don't give the cross of Jesus a second thought. We're just coming up to Easter, a festival all about remembering Jesus' death and resurrection. And yet thousands in our society will think Jesus' death is totally irrelevant. That Easter's just a useful excuse for chocolate. In fact, it even happens, not just people walking past the building, it even happens when people are in the building. We've got those four days that change the world talks coming up for Easter. There'll be people in here listening to a straight explanation of why Jesus' death is the most amazing thing. Like we were just singing, that it opens up eternal life for us. And they just won't see it. Walk out unchanged, not see the significance. Some of us will have had that experience with, with friends and family coming along to us, coming with us to hear a talk about Jesus. There is this spiritual blindness that humans have. This ability to hear of the cross and just not get it. Now we're going to find out the solution to the spiritual blindness in point two. But first, let's just think what Jesus is saying about the cross. In one sense, I guess it's I guess it's kind of understandable because the cross is a, is a surprising way for God to save humanity, a shocking way, actually, for God to uh, save humanity. I was, I was in a supermarket aisle recently um, perusing the Easter chocolate selection. Um, it was purely research purposes, of course, for this talk. Um, and I looked, and there's an amazing array of shapes and sizes and colours and prices that chocolate comes in these days at Easter. Amazing, amazing selection. Not a single chocolate cross. Not a single one. But you can kind of understand that, can't you? I mean, who wants to give someone a cross? It's not like a bunny or an egg or a basket full of flowers. It's a means of execution. A grim one, actually. It's it's gruesome. The cross was the Romans' most brutal form of execution. So it's worse than the electric chair, say, or the hangman's noose, or a guillotine. Actually, all those were uh, made uh, to deliver quick death. But the cross was designed to make it painful and slow and humiliating. It was, it was kind of visual for everyone to see. Um, it was a way of kind of publicly shaming the criminal. So bad that if you were a Roman citizen, you, you, couldn't, um, you couldn't be punished this way. Uh, it was so bad that Roman society, you wouldn't talk about this at a dinner party. And Jesus says that's the kind of death he's walking towards. Look at verse 32. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles, that's the Romans, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, there's the humiliation, and after flogging him, there's the violence, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of it. It'd be shocking for anyone you knew to go through this kind of experience. It's awful. It'd be even more shocking if they were innocent, if it was a miscarriage of justice, which it is with Jesus. It would be even more shocking if they knew that this brutal miscarriage of justice was about to happen and they walked towards it willingly. It would be even more shocking if they had the power to stop it. But that's what's going on here. Jesus, when he calls himself the Son of Man, in verse 31, he's not just saying, I'm a, I'm a human being, kind of a, I'm a normal bloke, my, my dad's a human. No, he's not saying that. 
He's using a royal title. The Son of Man was a title from Daniel, the Old Testament prophet, and a title for the judge of all the earth, the king of kings, the one at the end of time who who God handed authority to, to judge all humans living and dead. Jesus knows that is him. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, chapter 17, he said he's going to return as the son of man to hold all human beings to account. Be a kind of cataclysmic day. So he's saying the judge of all the nations is going to be handed over to the nations, be mocked, shamefully treated, spat upon, flogged, killed. What? What? How can that be? How could the Jewish and Roman authorities sit over the Son of Man in judgment and scorn him, the one who will judge every nation? How could they have the power to kill the one who will judge the living and the dead? Well, the answer to what's going on is actually buried in verse 31. See if you can spot it. Taking the 12, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That phrase is a big deal. Everything written in the prophets will be accomplished. Jesus is saying, my death has already been promised and explained by the prophets. It's a big deal, that word accomplished. Right at the start of Luke's gospel, he said he's writing so we can be certain about what's been accomplished. It's a kind of fulfillment word. Promises made hundreds of years before now being fulfilled. If you're not a Christian and you're listening in, I think this is one of the biggest reasons to take Christianity seriously. Maybe you're looking in and thinking, what do these Christians believe and why? Well, what we believe is that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in human history. It's the center of everything. It's the way that salvation is made possible for anyone. Why we believe it? Well, there's lots of reasons. Things like Jesus predicted his death beforehand, multiple times, multiple witnesses. Things like Jesus rose from the dead and left an empty tomb, multiple sightings, multiple witnesses. Actually, we also believe it because hundreds of years before it happened, God was explaining that this is the plan. I mean, we heard it earlier with our own ears, saw it with our own eyes in Isaiah. So he's writing 700 years before Jesus, speaking about this servant figure, this servant who would be righteous, who would bring justice to the nations, like the Son of Man, like a big figure, and yet who would suffer horrendous suffering. We heard of that first reading, Isaiah 50, this servant who's being mocked, rejected, suffering, but sets his face like a flint to just plow on. Like Jesus in Luke 9 set his face to go to Jerusalem, though he knew what it would involve. But why? Why would the Son of Man be so mistreated? Why would the servant suffer? Well, that's why we read Isaiah 53. Let me just read... From Don't worry to turn there, let me just read these verses again. It's an extraordinary explanation of Jesus' death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. I couldn't write a better talk on the cross than that. I'm not sure you could come up with a paragraph that that explains Jesus' death more accurately than that. He was pierced for our transgressions. And that's written 700 years before Jesus, before crucifixion was even invented, before the Romans were even the power of the day. It's absolutely extraordinary. And Jesus is saying, all those prophecies are going to be accomplished when I get to Jerusalem. See, that's what the Old Testament taught us needs to happen for anyone to be forgiven. This servant needs to die. Jesus is saying, I have to take your place. That's the only way God can make salvation possible. That actually explains one of the puzzles we had hanging over from last week. Um, We may not have felt the shock of last week. There was a tax collector, really bad guy, really bad guy, um, who prayed for mercy in the temple, and he received it. He went, went home justified, righteous in God's sight, declared righteous. Now, that tax collector was a notoriously wicked man, Everyone knew it. He knew it. And yet he he was forgiven as easily as if a a child had just received a present. Can I have a present? Yes. Can I be forgiven? Yes. How can it be that simple? I don't think we feel the force of it, because for us, the tax collector, I mean, HMRC, they're fairly good, I think. Uh, They're slightly annoying, but not, not kind of awful tax collector kind of um, the way that the first century tax collector was. Let me give you an alternative. Corrupt oligarch. Someone who's exploited others and gained immense wealth for themselves. Someone who's supported a war, an invasion. The Romans were occupying the land of God's people. The tax collectors were working for the Romans. Someone who's lined their own pockets and not cared the impact on others, the weak, the vulnerable. Could someone like that call out for mercy and as simple as that be forgiven, righteous in God's sight? How is that not a travesty of God's justice, a kind of tear through the moral fabric of the universe to let someone like that off the hook? How is it possible to forgive them without saying their crimes are not serious? Doesn't someone have to pay for someone like that, for someone like me? Oh yes, Jesus has to pay on the cross. That's the point. That's why this comes just after we've heard about the tax collector being justified. Um, Someone had to take the punishment and Jesus is going to the cross to do that. To say it did matter, actually, how that man treated people. Say that justice must be satisfied. And so it's extraordinary. The son of man, the judge of all the earth, the one whose verdict will stand over every human life, gets down from the bench, walks to the cross, climbs onto death row and says, I'll take it. I'll do it. So that he can go free. It's amazing. That's why Easter is amazing. That's our first point, the cross. That's how God makes the impossible possible, the cross. Jesus' long-promised death makes salvation possible. 
Now, we've only touched on Isaiah. There's, there's countless pictures of the cross as you go through the Old Testament. We haven't got time to go through them all. Whether the Passover lamb, uh, the sacrificial system in the temple, the Psalms of David, the suffering king, and prophecies from Isaiah are all across the prophets. Jesus himself now has prophesied three times that he's going to the cross. But of course, the disciples can't see it. Bible's in their hands. Jesus in front of them explaining it. They can't see it. Which is why we need our second point. This is the second thing we need, the miracle. Jesus supernaturally opening blind eyes. That's what makes following him possible. That's our second point. The second way God makes the impossible possible. Jesus needs to supernaturally open blind eyes to make following him possible. I do think that's what's going on here. So in verse 35, we meet a blind man. Uh, he's physically blind. I uh, don't know what's wrong. Detached retina or who knows. Or his eyes have never worked, maybe. We don't know. But we do know that the disciples have just been described as spiritually blind in verse 34. And just look, it's really emphatic. Verse 34, it actually says it three times. They understood none of these things, number one. The saying was hidden from them, number two. They did not grasp what was said, number three. They're as blind as bats when it comes to understanding the cross. And now we meet a blind man and see how Jesus can open the eyes of the blinds. I really do think it's a kind of visible, physical miracle to show what's needed invisibly to our spiritual eyesight. So let's have a look. Verse 40. Jesus stopped. Um, the blind man was begging by the road. We'll come back to his prayer at the end, but let's just pick up from verse 40 where Jesus stops and has a conversation with him. I want us to notice how he regains his sight and also what he does with his eyesight. Okay? So how does he regain his sight? Well, Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him, and when he came near, asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. How are his eyes opened? Well, by looking to Jesus, trusting Jesus. Jesus has the power to do the impossible, to open blind eyes. That's how he regains his sight. What does he do with his newfound eyesight? Verse 43, this is so striking. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The blind man gets up, eyes restored, and follows Jesus, praising God. It's another really striking moment. Because in lots of ways, this whole journey we've been on to Jerusalem has been asking the question, are you going to follow this cross-bound Christ? Jesus has kept saying, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, it's going to take this, it's going to be costly. That's the big question. Are you going to follow Jesus on this road? Last week, you, we met the guy who you'd expect to follow him. He was interested in eternal life. And it would have been great if you followed him. He had loads of money. He was quite morally and um, kind of uh, decent, powerful. Looked like a really strong candidate. And he left sad because he never asked for help. Here's this beggar. He does not look like a strong candidate for following Jesus. He's got no resources. He's blind. There's no chance of seeing Jesus, let alone following him along the road. Seemingly a no-hoper when it comes to following the cross-bound Christ. Except what is impossible with human beings is possible with God. 
Jesus is able to open his eyes so that he can follow him on the journey. And what goes on there physically is a picture of what happens spiritually. Let me put it like this. Why is this building full of people? Like really, there's other things we could do on a Sunday. Why are we all here thinking about the cross of Jesus? Singing about the cross of Jesus, how wonderful it is. Why are we going to celebrate Easter as the most significant event in human history? Not because we're cleverer than other people and have kind of worked it out philosophically or, or followed the, the promises. Not because we're more morally decent and can see that we should humble ourselves before a holy God. No, fundamentally, anyone who's sitting here trusting in the cross of Jesus does so because Jesus worked a miracle. Opened our eyes. Stepped into our life. We'll see it next week with Zacchaeus. Just stepped into our life because the Son of Man came to seek and save lost people. It's a miracle any one of us is here as a Christian. That should fill us with humility. We really are like the little child on the screen, dependent, just receiving the kingdom as a gift. Nothing we contribute or earn. should also, if you're not a Christian here, if you're kind of sitting outside looking in, it should fill you with hope. I sometimes hear people say, I wish I had faith like you. Or, I want to believe, but I just can't. Or you sometimes get this with Hope Explored or Christianity Explored, where I can see the evidence historically for Jesus stacks up. But I just can't get myself over the line to you know, actually follow him. It's too costly. What would my friends and family think? I just find it hard to believe he's definitely coming back. Well, the story of the blind man says, have you asked for him to open your eyes? says, don't let Jesus walk by, pass you by, without begging, crying out for mercy, let me recover my sight, open my eyes that I might follow you. He didn't ignore that prayer here. He won't do it, ignore it today. All of which gives us, brings us to our third point, how to respond. We've had the cross. Jesus' long-promised death makes salvation possible. And that's the kind of objective once-for-all work. Jesus had to die to open the door to anyone being saved. But then we've thought about the miracle, which is much more personal. Every individual needs Jesus to open our eyes by his Spirit to follow him. So then what's the response? Well, this prayer. This prayer, begging for King Jesus to open our eyes to follow him. That's the other thing that's really noticeable about the blind man. Uh, He's begging (laughs) I mean, he's begging in verse 35, but then when he hears that Jesus is passing by, verse 37, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Striking, it seems like God's already at work because the crowd just say Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Like, oh, you know, it's that guy, the, um, the local rabbi from Nazareth, he's coming through. But the blind man's starting to see already, Jesus, son of David, King Jesus, have mercy on me. Now, verse 39, those who are around um, tell him to pipe down. Striking, actually, when, when people do get interested in the gospel in Jesus, there's often folk around them saying, oh, don't bother with that. Or, Jesus wouldn't bother with you. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. What an absolutely brilliant prayer that is. 
It's actually the prayer we've heard a number of times, the tax collector. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The leper. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Jesus is saying, this is the right prayer. Not the Pharisee approach we saw last week. Thank you, God, that I haven't done what some of those people have done, and I have done a few good things. No. King Jesus, have mercy on me. Open my eyes. Now, just before we close, we are are drawing to a close, but just before we close, that is the prayer you pray if you want to become a Christian, or you want help to be given the gift of faith. But I want to say, I think this is not just for new believers. We've seen that no one gets into the narrow door of salvation without humbling themselves, admitting that we're not okay. Actually, much of this journey to Jerusalem isn't just about how you begin the Christian life, but about how you walk the Christian life, how you follow Jesus as a believer. As I said at the start, we've been seeing it's pretty challenging. Jesus has been setting the bar really high, prioritizing him above all, engaging in the business of his kingdom, sharing the gospel, speaking publicly about Jesus, praying persistently for his kingdom to come, using our financial resources for the kingdom, seeking his kingdom first. I think it'd be easy for for, for us to feel like, wow, If that's what it means to follow Jesus, I'm not sure I can. Like, I'm not brave enough, courageous enough to do the kind of public speaking uh, to people about Jesus. I'm not sacrificial enough to to, to bear the cost of using my resources for others to hear about him. I'm not sure I'm loving enough to God or to others. I'm not sure I've got enough faith to believe Jesus is really coming back. If that's what following Jesus looks like, I'm not actually sure it's possible. Let me suggest there are two ways to deal with that feeling. The first is to pretend Jesus didn't say all those things. I know I'm tempted to do that. We're going to get to the end of the journey in two weeks' time. Uh, We'll carry on in Luke, but that will be the end of the journey. Easy at that point just to close the Bible and say, phew, (laughs) wow, That sounded intense, but that's done now. We can move on to something else and just kind of forget about the costly commands he issued and how uncomfortable some of them are. That way of hardening our hearts to God's word, of kind of lowering God's standards so we can justify ourselves and say, well, I'm okay, I do do some things. That is the approach of the Pharisees. It's a dead end, dangerous. But then if we can't lower the bar to a place where we can actually step over it, well, then what hope is there? Lots of us do know ourselves and know we struggle to speak about Jesus, to face opposition, to persevere in generosity and prayer. Well, here's the thing that's massively encouraged me from this passage. Just at the point of the journey when we're starting to feel like this sounds impossible, Jesus says God can do the impossible. Yet with man, humans, it's impossible. But all things are possible with God. God can do the impossible. And that includes for Christians. It includes opening our eyes to see Jesus more clearly, to understand his cross more deeply. If we just beg for his help, ask for mercy, 
See, this blind man prayer isn't just a prayer for someone becoming a Christian. It's the ongoing prayer for us as a church. King Jesus, have mercy. We want to see you clearly. We want to see so clearly we can follow you on the way. We want to be a cross that's with, sorry, a church that's with the crossbound Christ. If you're wondering, is this really a prayer for Christians? Well, just think, when Paul prays for the Ephesian church, they're definitely Christians. He's just said that, and he says that God would open the eyes of their hearts by his Spirit, so they might live more in line with the gospel. There's a great prayer. I actually prayed it at the start. I'm going to pray it at the end in a moment again. Uh, let me just uh, remind us of it. You may know it. It's, from a, it's set to music um, in a song called Day by Day. Um, if you ever saw or were forced to do the musical Godspell, um, uh, it's in that. Um, I don't necessarily recommend everything in Godspell, but that song's good. Um, apparently it was also once, according to Wikipedia, sung by Scylla Black in the hit parade. If you're of a certain generation, you may know that. Um, if you were around in the 13th century... Probably not, but um, the Bishop of Chichester apparently came up with it then. Here's the prayer. Day by day, day by day, O dear Lord, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day. Now the rhymes are a bit naff, but the sentiment is absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly, day by day. It's a great Christian prayer. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Help me to see you better so I can follow you. Come back next week and we'll see Jesus doing that with Zacchaeus, a rich man who did manage to repent and use his wealth for the kingdom. But let me pray now that prayer for us. Lord Jesus, Son of Man, Son of David, King of Kings, we thank you so much for the cross. Thank you that your death makes salvation possible. But we realise if we're ever going to follow you, in a life of sacrificial service, we need help. And so we do cry for your mercy. We pray that you would open our eyes. We pray three things, that you would help us to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and so to follow you more nearly, day by day. We pray that in your name. Amen.